in Haggai we're looking at. This is uh, The Call to Faith is the name of the series. Uh, it's part three, Defiled but Not Defeated. Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, they're all interesting because they're all about God's word, obviously. Um, but this one in particular is interesting because this really gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, what is, what's behind all the actions that we do? What's behind everything that we do, even if it's for God? What's behind those actions? What's the heart that sits behind that? Because that matters. Uh, in Haggai, what we're going to learn is that it is about a submission to God now before anything else, before anything happens, before we do anything, before they build even the temple, even though they're in, on the way of building it, before they finish it, God calls them out and says, but all your rituals, all the things that you're doing, they won't mean anything unless your heart is submitted to God. Buildings will not fix it. You can't have God rub off on you. You can't have holiness rub off on you. You have to have your heart directed towards God. And so submission is for now, for the future kingdom to come. It is faith, it is trust in what is to come. So that, and we'll get onto this towards the end, we can, as Christians, live peacefully and righteously in the present time. The challenge, as I'll go into explain for us, is as the world seemingly, and we're always going to kind of fall apart, was always going to get worse, because it says it in the Bible, where we're going to find our peace? It's in Jesus. So we might react to the world, we might react to terrible things that go on around the world, we might disagree with many things that go on in the world that people do. But we don't find our peace in those things because we get our anger, because we're having a, having a go ourselves. We're going we're gonna to be all righteous and get in their faces. No, our peace is in Jesus. Our peace, we find, is in the word, is through the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to explain what these verses say. What does it say? And then we'll go into what, what it means uh, and the application for us today. So. Let's take these verses first. Haggai 2, 10 to 14 says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? So Haggai's asking them a question, and he's, he's kind of setting them up a little bit. He wants them to understand where they're going to go with their answers. So the priest says, well, no, of course not. And the priest is right. He's absolutely correct on that. Then he says in 13, then Haggai said, if a person uh, defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. This way, guys. Thanks. <laughs> 14 then Haggai said so it is with this people and this nation in my sight declares the Lord whatever they do and whatever they have off whatever they offer there is defiled Haggai what he's doing here he questions the priests he questions the priests and they were accustomed actually, to answering these types of questions. They were used to it. So in some ways, it's quite easy. These are things that they should know already. What he's asking them is about the transmission of both holiness and impurity. And so the priest answers correctly. According to the law of Moses, holiness is not contagious, but impurity is. Example might be that a sick child cannot catch health from contacting a healthy child. Logically, it doesn't make sense. If a child touches a healthy child, a sick child touches a healthy child, a sick adult touches a healthy adult, they will not become healthy. Does that make sense? That's just logical, right? You understand that's how viruses work. It's how diseases work. Uh, you can't get healthy by touching someone who is healthy. But the healthy child can become sick. So this is the concept that Haggai is getting to. The principle of transmission really only works one way, far more than both ways. So it only works if you have something, if you have a virus, a disease, you pass it on potentially, depending on how that transmits, but it transmits to a healthy person. Health doesn't transmit to an unhealthy person. So on the same principle, 
living in the holy land and offering sacrifices would not make the people acceptable. Just because these people are there in the holy land does not make him acceptable. And this is as long as they themselves were unclean through the neglect of the house of the Lord. So then he goes on. 15 to 19, now give careful thought to this. From this day on, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to heap a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Those experiences of uh, God's uh, parenting, let me call it that, God's uh, teaching to his people, they were real. But God's people didn't learn from them. And it gets a little bit difficult to understand. I'm going to go into this, what this all means. It talks about fig trees and barns and all sorts of things like that. We'll go into that. But what we see in this difficult times, in those difficult times, is that uh, they don't necessarily bring us closer to God. And so even when God blighted their hand, blighted their uh, farming, their, all the things they tried to do, what it should have done was convict them of the fact that they were not close to God. They were not submitting to him. And yet it didn't. So you might think, well, that's a bit unfair, God doing that. God's given them grace. God could give them nothing at all. But he says, you could have everything. Your crops can be perfectly growing. You can have everything that you need to live. But if you don't come to me, if you don't submit to me, things go bad. Things go wrong. Sin blights everything that they will touch. They were, for that time, a stubborn people towards God. But then God promised blessing to his people if they put their priorities back in order with him and his work first. And whilst this isn't a promise about it coming immediately, which we will go into as well, God was showing them that they need to trust him from now. It's very particular. I'm just going to shut this door. really bugging me anyway let's get back um so god promises a blessing to his people if they put their priorities back in order uh and so it isn't necessarily that that's going to change suddenly the next day isn't going to suddenly all get better uh, but god says you need to trust me whatever will happen to them going forward god was promising them that they that he would be with them that that he was enough uh, so that they would uh, have this blessing and this blessing would be with them forever. And we'll look at the challenge of that, of this thing of trusting God, even if the results aren't immediate. And there's a very good way to explain that. And I'll, I'll try and do that uh, today. Goes on 20 and 22. Says the word of the Lord came to Haggai second time, 24th day of the month. Tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones, shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms, Overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. As the returning exiles, these people here, this last remnant, uh, were a remnant, seemingly small as well, there's not many of them left. God wanted them to know uh, that even if the world saw them as insignificant and small, in God's sight they were his servants, servants of an all powerful God. And whilst Haggai's message were uh, this assortment of encouragement and rebuke, ultimately, if they just listened, just listened, and acted upon these messages, God would promise to fight for his people to restore them and rescue them. And we know that God will win. And then finally, 23, on that day declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, declares the Lord, I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. 
And we'll go into that. The signet ring was a token of royal authority, much like a throne, a crown or a, a scepter. Uh, Zerubbabel was then a truly chosen person of God. And we'll see what that means in that context. Uh, the ancestry of Jesus in his ancestry, as we look back before he came, Zerubbabel was the last person to stand to be both in the line of Mary. And I'll show you that. And Joseph. Uh, a legal lineage and a blood lineage of Jesus. Jeconiah was the last legitimate king of Judah. There's some background there. Uh, that's really important. I'll come on to that as a royal house of David goes through him. And his only successor was uh, Zedekiah. And that was his uncle who was appointed uh, not by right, but by an occupying Babylon ruler. And even at the end of his life, the Babylons recognize uh, Jeconiah as the legitimate king of Judah. And we'll get into that as well. Let's look at the meaning and application. What does this all mean? Old Testament can be difficult to understand, if, uh, and certainly in application terms. How does that apply to us today? What does that mean? And I'm going to try and explain that to you. Um, I've watched red background on this stuff. You have to when you look at stuff like Haggai and Old Testament um, prophets and things like that. But David Pawson, who's a really good teacher, um, he has a very good overview of Haggai. 30 minutes long video on YouTube, very helpful. Um, but one thing he says, and it sums up what it means by what they, the priests were asked by Haggai, when he talks about the meats and the different things, what touches this, what unholiness, what makes something unholy and holy. And it literally says this, he, David Pawson says, this, clean doesn't make dirty clean, dirty does make clean dirty. Does that make sense? You might have to reread it. I actually mistyped that before, and it was the same line twice. But clean doesn't make dirty clean. Dirty does make clean dirty. What Haggai is doing is trying to make the people think. The questions are to engage their minds, engage their hearts. And we often think that being a Christian is about blindly following something, and it's not. The Bible says we should reason with the word. We should look at it. We should study, investigate it. What does it say? What's God really saying behind these words? So here Haggai says, think about what you're doing. Think about this. I'm going to give you a question to make you think about it. He tells them that the rituals and sacrifices, the outward things that they do, that would seemingly be right in their eyes, but was not right in the sight of God. And this was because what was holy, as we said before, couldn't make things that were unholy, holy. Instead, their offerings, their sacrifices were being contaminated by unclean hands, being offered without repentance in effect. So they would go through the motions of the ritual sacrifices, the ritual things they would do. The problem was when they took it, their heart was not in the right place. So they would take anything, any ritual you'd take of that time. And the problem God is trying to point out to them through Haggai is that the problem is you're contaminating it first. It, by the time it gets to the altar, by the time you're bringing it to sacrifice, it's already been sinned. It's already been dirtied. So doing the rituals and neglecting the temple is what God was not pleasing, was not pleasing to him. To God, first and foremost, although he's commanding them, he's telling them, build this temple because it's been left too long. The first thing he's trying to get them back to, because they've forgotten, because actually forgotten it is probably getting away with it a little bit. They don't want to face it. They don't want to face what's in their heart. So they do these ritual things. But what God wants first and foremost is obedience. Obedience is better than ritual or sacrifice. Why is that? Because it doesn't matter how consistent or well that ritual is done. The problem is it comes from a disobedient heart. And that's not what God looks for in his people. God is not impressed by our outward actions, by you and me. He's not impressed by that. He's not impressed by what we can achieve. God is impressed with himself because he is impressive. It's perfect. 
But moreover, he's honoured by a heart that seeks to be obedient before anything is done in his name. I've got this quote here from Baldwin. He says, the ruined skeleton of the temple is like a dead body decaying in Jerusalem and making everything contaminated. So two things are going on there. They're not building the temple, but when they are building the temple, their, their hearts are not in the right place of doing it. It's almost like they're just, they're hearing God telling them what to do, and they're just going, well, we'll just go and do that, because God's told us what to do. And that will make everything better. But this temple is special. The second temple is especially more so special because this is the last one before Jesus comes back. Jesus will visit this temple in the New Testament. Jesus will come and visit this temple. This temple will be a representation of the everlasting uh, price paid for sin. This is an important temple. This is more important, says Haggai, than the first one. More important than Solomon's temple because this one finishes it. This one is the representation of what is to come. No more will you have to sacrifice animals. No more will you have to sacrifice things. Jesus will be the ultimate sacrifice. But you must give yourself to Jesus. The attitude of the people is that mere contact with the temple makes them clean in God's sight. That was their attitude. But they were living in sin. Their hearts were not aligned with God. The holiness of the temple is not rubbing off on them. He said their sin violates the temple. And of course, the, the easy example, I suppose, is, is church. Maybe for some people to go to church, there's this strange expectation and understanding that I think is mostly subconscious, mostly not understood, but it's still concerning. And it's just one aspect that Maybe as parents, if we, we all go to church, that will make us all holy. Like if, you're, if, you're, if your parents go and they take their kids with them, that will make them holy, that will save them. We believe here in baptism. We believe that the person makes the choice to believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, we bring them to church. We want them to hear the message. But we want them to make that choice. We want them to make that step. Coming to church even here today does not rub holiness onto you. You don't become a Christian because you walk through the doors today. If we go to church, put on our Sunday best and wait for it to all be over, we can get on with our lives for the rest of the week having had some holiness rub off on us. I've done my church bit, I'm going home. I'll be all right for the rest of the week, thank you. If we do our church rituals, some of the God stuff will rub off, rub off on us and God will be happy with that. Aren't I a good little worker? But Sunday church in particular is not a chance for any of us to just have God rub off on us and so go about our week unchanged. Being part of a church, sharing life with church is part of being a believer. It's not the reason for believing. Church is not going to make people believe in Jesus. The message will bring people to a knowledge of him. The gospel that we preach here will bring some revelation to people. But the church will not make people Christian. Otherwise, we're exercising this religi religiosity. We're exercising the same thing that potentially did in Haggai's time. Which they thought rituals and doing things would bring them closer to God, would make them holy. So they didn't need to expose their heart to God. They didn't need to be honest about themselves. They just said, well, if I touch things, if I do things for God, that will make me holy. God will be so pleased. So what was God doing? Especially here in Haggai. Well, God was showing them through their rituals was the nature of sin. You say, well, what is the nature of sin? And we can see that here. John 3, 19 to 20. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because of their deeds, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. You see how what we see in Haggai, this is what's happening. So they didn't want to, they know this is not by accident. They know. That if they embrace God, if they truly embrace him in his heart, 
the first thing he's going to do is do a little bit of surgery on us. He's going to go, I'm going to expose you. You're going to feel the pain of what you've done. You're going to, you're going to really know what it is to have sinned against me. But now we stand here, don't we? Because we do that, but now we have Jesus. And so he's doing the same here with the temple. He's saying, don't worry, though, because what's to come is Jesus. I'm not going to leave you dead. But if you just admit your sin, you can have eternal life forever. You just come to me and be honest. You are no longer condemned, but you are now a new creation in Christ. But it's so true that how we so want heaven and God, but oh, how we want it to be on our terms. Oh, how we want it to be our version of God. Not one that is holy, but one that's okay with us living however we want. A God that's just, I'm okay if you're okay. We don't want to be exposed by the very sin that we do, so we ritualize God, make him into a God that only sees, sees what we do, rather than the true God who sees who we really are. So to come to the true God of the Bible requires every single person to accept the need for God in the first place, to cleanse us of our sin through repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament's helpful because, and it's really helpful to teach, uh, and, and we balance it well with the New Testament. The reason for that and why it's important is because we're showing the amazing time of grace and salvation that we live in now. So we look back then and God's doing a work and we all ask questions, well, Jesus wasn't around and what happens to all those people that die that didn't have Jesus? Listen, I believe that if they follow God, believe in their heart, they're with him. But here is what's being told here. All through time, up until this point and to beyond, the Old Testament is telling us that God is going to present Jesus to us. He's going to pay for sin. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise again. And all you have to say is Jesus, I believe in you. No more temples need to be built. No more altars to sacrifice on. I can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've read some of your book, even some of your book. And it has convicted me of stuff that's going on in my life. Lord, I'm so grateful that all I have to do is be honest and go, Lord, I believe in you. Just compare that to what went on then. They've got to do something that they can't see. They're building something that is not going to be in their lifetime. So he says, trust in me as we are called to trust in him today. It will come. It will happen. So verses 15 to 17 call the people to consider what they should do now. In view of how life was for them, before they started building the temple. So what God's doing here, 15, 17, he's saying, remember what it was like before. Remember how you suffered before. He says, now give careful thought to this, this day on. Consider how things were, for one stone was laid on another, uh, another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, meld you how, yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. What God does is he reminds them that to continue in disobedience has surely proven already that it only brings blight. That it only brings blight on their crops and their ability to live a life God wants for them. God says, look how much it has cost you until now. Why go on in this sin knowing that? We're not always very good at learning from our mistakes, are we? We're not always very good at it. And here God lays it out so plainly. Look how much you've caused on yourself by not trusting in me, believing in me. Look at all the trouble you have caused for yourself by not trusting and believing that I can take you all the way to eternity if you just trust in me. Are you seriously going to continue? knowing what you know.
The challenge for us, I think, as Christians is knowing now what we did not know fully before. And if you look back at your life, if you, you're a Christian and you look back, you, you look at your life and you think, I was living in ignorance. The challenge for us now as Christians is, is that sin has been revealed to us. And so our challenge is, I know these things that I do. I'm now aware of how they dishonor God. I know that I don't, those things don't live up to his standard. So that's what we're faced with every day. We now know what we didn't know before. Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now we know what we didn't know. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who've fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss they're crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. You can't not know what you now know. Does that make sense? Once you, once you become a Christian, once you taste, it says, the heavenlies, you can't go back to a place where you suddenly don't know that. You can't even pretend that you don't know that. God knows that you know it. And he says, but to do that is very intentional. This, is, this part in Hebrews, I have to say, is an extreme circumstance. It is not common in that sense. I need to be careful here. It is not common. But it does happen when people purposefully, not accidentally, not in some form of being uh, taken away of being tempted away, that might happen, and people's lives may be not aligned with God for a while, that happens too, but this is purposefully choosing to be away from God, choosing to not believe in him anymore, even though you've been told everything about him. Because after this, he says, but not for you. He basically has great confidence that they will stick to what they've been told about Jesus. So God reminds them, why continue? Why continue in this sin? You know what you were doing. God knows what they were doing. God, I mean, at least for these people in, in Haggai, God has rumbled them. He already knew, but he's waited to this time to go, look, I, knew, I know all along and I know what is ahead. I know what you're going to do. I know, but I want you to choose me. I want you to choose me. Because are you really going to pretend it wasn't because of being knowingly disobedient? Are you going to make excuses? And you really think this is going to work if we just do the same thing again? So God says the logical, spiritual, righteous answer was to come back to him. The simplest answer was to come back to him. The frustrations and hardships that they'd been experiencing were due to their neglect. They were deliberate or even inadvertent uh, of God's house. They'd slipped into these wrong priorities. They'd built panelled houses for themselves and left the, the destruction of the temple definitely lying there. So the first thing, they, they got discouraged and they said, well, people are against it, we're just going to build our houses. And we'll use all the material that God gave us on our own houses. Uh, I, I don't think that's the best way to go. Uh, we, as you will know, this place is to look different. Now, if... Uh, I took all the materials that were used to re renovate this place. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? If I took all the materials, all the plasterboard, everything that we put in here, all the media, all everything else, and said, oh, oh, you know what? Oh, it's just too much. I'm going to take it and put it in my house. It'd be wrong, wouldn't it? Comparison. I took all the materials, all the things that God would provide for them, took this amazing high quality wood and they panelled their houses with it. Not the temple, their house, their own things. So they slipped into these wrong priorities, putting their own pleasure and comfort 
ahead of God's kingdom. God sent his, uh, sorry, his discipline to get them to stop and consider their mixed up priorities. So God says, from this day, I will bless you. And so I want us to not misunderstand this verse. What does this mean? Because we need to understand how God works. We work in time. We understand minute by minute, second by second. God works outside of time. So he knows everything from beginning to end, Alpha Omega. He knows everything. So I want us not misunderstand this, that we're careful not to misconstrue this as from to be from that very day. That that very moment, everything will change. Um, let me put it another way, uh, maybe an example. When we baptise people, the, the baptism itself, as we believe as Baptists, is, is not that that is the thing that makes you a believer, okay? So as you get baptised, dunked in the water, as it were, you get your dunking, and what happens is you are showing to everyone else that you believe in Jesus. More importantly, you're showing that you want to follow the command of Jesus. You want to do what Jesus did. Now, we can go all day long about other people that didn't get baptized. That's true. Other people, the man on the cross, the thief on the cross next to Jesus was not baptized. So baptism is not about becoming a Christian. It's not about you baptize and therefore you're a Christian. But I want to do it because I want to do what Jesus said I could do, that he did. I can't hang on a cross, I can't die for anyone, I can't remove sin, but there are a couple of things I can do so I can get baptised as Jesus got baptised. I can take communion as Jesus did communion. Those are the things we believe that we're just following because we want to do what he did. But when that happens, it's not that that suddenly changes your next day. In, in my experience... I say this because it's happened to me when I was baptised afterwards and I've seen other people go through it. Because of what I spoke about earlier, this revelation of God, you, you now know what you didn't know. Here's what happens in these, for some, in these first few maybe weeks, maybe a couple of months. As you, you're, that, all oh, the Bible is revealed to you, Jesus Christ more and more is revealed to you about what he did, what he's done for us. What happens is that you suddenly feel like wow, this is heavy. Suddenly, uh, um, of course, you're reading your Bible, you're learning more about him. That revelation is a lot to take in. And I've seen some people go, suddenly I feel I had a couple of days of joy, and I'm feeling this is heavy. I'm feeling quite heavy. I want to tell you that the devil doesn't want you to believe in Jesus. The enemy doesn't want you to believe in Jesus. So I'm going to tell you right up front, because the Bible tells me so, it's not easy. Taking in that revelation of God about ourselves, about our sinfulness, that's a lot to take in. But there is a great promise at the end of that. That through all of this, there is salvation. That there is eternity to spend with him forever. That's the promise of what's to come. And in that promise for today, I now live in joy, even despite my troubles and my struggles. So not everything will change from this day, as he says. And there's another reason why it won't change on that very day, because God is not a genie in a lamp. You don't rub him to get what you want. You don't get a wish. I want to show you this Hebrews 12, which I think explains it. And this is what you go through. This is why it's not instant, because the Lord is doing something, training you to be Christ-like. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, he chastens, chastens everyone he accepts as son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however... 
it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Come to this church, I'm going to tell you the truth of scripture. It ain't an easy choice to make church. When you believe in Jesus, there are some things that God will show you about your heart and go, wow. He'll show you stuff about the world. He'll tell you how sinful the world is, how broken it is, and you'll feel a heavy heart. And every Christian will have to go through discipline, even as it seems painful, not because God is some sort of sadistic person, because he is teaching us like a father right now, because later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You've been taught. We are all being taught in our painful lessons that we have to go through in life. So you see, it's not that everything is right as rain. It is that in order to understand and share in his holiness, we must submit everything in our heart that tries to sit above Jesus himself. Every opinion, political preference, ideology, philosophy or self-righteousness must take second place to Jesus. And Hebrews helpfully goes on. 12, 14 to 15, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Let me be clear. Everyone is everyone. Not just about believers. Be peaceful with everyone. I'll explain what that means. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone, to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it, no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. What God is doing for the people here is not to make them feel better. It is to reveal to them that this journey of submission is a painful one, yes. But there is a difference in regards to what the world does and what God does. It is that it will be fruitful and ultimately bring them peace. Let me explain something about this verse in Hebrews. Why is it so important that we're told to live peacefully with everyone, every single person? Here's the challenge. When we're faced with people who disagree, when we disagree with their politics, disagree with their preferences, disagree with their lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, here is where it comes to the crunch. I still want them to know about Jesus. I still want them to know that they can have an amazing life in Jesus Christ. Now, if I react in a hostile way, that person has a right to say to me, I thought you lived in peace. I thought you had Jesus in your life. Because I don't want this Jesus. I don't want this one. If this is the Jesus you're talking about that stirs you up to be hostile and aggressive, and I don't want that. Now, let me be clear. We're not here to compromise. We're here to bring the gospel as it's presented. Not in my political opinion, not in just my own self-righteous opinion, but to present the word as it has been presented. And speak truth. If you don't believe in Jesus, and I want you to because I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to go to heaven. I want you to have salvation for the rest of your life. I want you to live in eternity with the Lord and the Savior. Does that speak peacefully better than trying to have an argument with people? The Bible tells us, don't argue with people. It says, at some point, when that becomes aggressive and hostile, stand back. Stop it. It's not going to help them. It's not going to help you. Walk away. Try again another time. Where is our peace? Do we find it in the world, or are we finding it in Jesus? That is the challenge that non-Christians could put to us. Where is my trust? Romans 12 verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. We did this last week in our evening service, uh, our special evening service, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not be like those who want to not believe in Jesus, who don't want the message Instead, be peaceful and loving and say, I want you to know about Jesus. If you don't want to know, okay? 
I'm going to tell you and then I'm going to leave you. Where is our peace? Where is our trust? Is our trust in that Jesus through the Holy Spirit can bring revelation to people or is it down to me to convince people that Jesus is Lord? It's not, it's not down to me. It's down to Jesus, down for the Holy Spirit. The beauty of being a Christian in this sense is that I have the, the luxury of telling people about Jesus. Not about debating, not about getting into an argument. Saying, well, Lord, okay, that was, that was intense. I'm going to step off, I'm going to let them be for a little while. See where you present the next one. Where is our peace? Don't conform to the world, but renew your mind. Don't be like the world and get drawn into discouragement. Don't get drawn into bitterness. For that is what will make us unconcerned with holiness and our relationship with people. We'll be so focused on the bitterness that we lose track of the mission to see many come to Christ. Don't let a bitter root grow up in you. Find peace in Jesus Christ. What sermon would be without a quote from Spurgeon? This holiness is a thing of growth. It may be in the soul as the grain of a mustard seed, yet not developed. It may be in the heart as a wish and a desire, rather than anything that has been fully realized. A groaning, a panting, a longing, a, longing, a striving. You see what I'm saying? When, when we, we look at this and we say, God's not doing it right away. God's not going to suddenly change everything. When we looked at discipline in the other verses, we're saying this is a thing of growing in Christ. It will take time until you leave this place, until you die, until you join him in heaven. And so this is what God has called us into. There's no quick fix. Believing in Jesus is the beginning of a revelation of the mess we're in, the mess that we are. But under his righteousness, it will eventually be a revelation of who we will be when we finally meet him. So just as we've been reading as church today, we're not doing any of this for today. But what is to come? That which we cannot see. We may not see the return of Jesus, but we believe and we, we submit ourselves in obedience because he said it will happen anyway. We may not ever see him return. In our lifetime. But someone will. And people will. So what do we do? We're obedient now regardless. Because we believe in what he promises. We don't believe in Jesus for a nicer life. But we want to go on that journey of faith now. Which will be painful and unpleasant. But will train us for the day that he will return. And we will meet him in the air. And so. After God has revealed the specifics of what needs to be done, now he then reveals this glorious purpose in the future. As we look at the last few verses, 21 to 23, tells the governor of Judah, going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'll overturn royal thrones, shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms, I'll overthrow chariots, drivers, horses, riders, will fall each by the sword of his brother. And that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, declares the Lord, I'll make you like my signet ring, for I've chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. As the events here predicted didn't actually transpire historically, this promise pertains to this royal line through who the Messiah would come. It looked forward to the ultimate day when the Messiah would reign on earth. And this signet ring, this signet ring was used by the owner for the signing of letters official documents so this signet ring was a a mark of honor and authority Zerubbabel would carry with him the authority of the Lord and would represent him so as we look at the signet ring it's a foreshadowing it's a metaphor of Jesus in Jeremiah 22 I haven't got the verses up 24 to 25 God said if uh, Jeconiah, Zerubbabel, that's Zerubbabel's grandfather, who Zerubbabel we're talking about here, were his signet ring, he would cast him off. He, he, he wasn't fit to lead them. But Haggai was saying that through Zerubbabel, God would reverse that curse and it pronounced, that he pronounced on Jeconiah. God would place the wicked king's grandson 
like a signet ring on his finger. So he introduced him into the line of Jesus. You want to talk about someone who's chosen. Zerubbabel is chosen. I said at the start, we saw in the ancestry of Jesus, Zerubbabel was one of the last people, person to stand to be both in the line of Mary, and that was the blood lineage of Jesus, and then in Joseph, which was the legal lineage of Jesus. And uh, hopefully this helpful picture here can very easily, quickly describe how it uh, works. Here is Zerubbabel, brings the line together, and then we've got Joseph, which is the legal line, and then we've got Mary, which is the bloodline. What we know for sure here is Zerubbabel was truly chosen of God. He says to him, here's, you're going to represent me. And after you, it's going to come Joseph and Mary. And after that, it's going to come Jesus. He's so close. He's so close. Zerubbabel is dedicated to the service of God. His signet ring seals him as having power and authority from God. But God appreciated the trust and faithfulness Zerubbabel had shown in building the temple. And so God makes him the signet to show, I trust this man. This ring was the power of attorney, if you will, to use the authority of the one who gave it. And so in this, Zerubbabel was a type and shadow of Christ. Always, it's always pointing to Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, it's always about Jesus. It was always about what was to come, what happened, and then what is then to come after our time. 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 5 says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see the same things going on in Haggai as we're seeing right here. The only way is acceptable was to submit to God. For us, it's that Jesus has paid the price and our sacrifices, however they, whatever they manifest themselves to be, how we work to share the gospel, they're acceptable to him because of Jesus, not because of us. So the same message is today. It doesn't matter how much good work you do in church. It doesn't matter how much good work you do in the community. It doesn't matter how much good work you do in the world. If it isn't about Jesus, it's worthless. It does not honor him. It does not glorify him. So as Christians, here's what we do. We live for Jesus first. We want to honor, submit, obey him in every way we possibly can in these broken bodies and these sinful minds. But in his grace, he says, but you can still, you can still do it. You can still come. I know you're imperfect. I know you've got problems. But because of me, this is Jesus, because of Jesus, you have grace, you have salvation. I have paid the price for you. So whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So today we have Jesus Christ who makes our spiritual sacrifice acceptable. And that's what God promised all the way back to Haggai. In the same way, God called on them to submit to him. So that call goes out even today through Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you that even if it is hard to watch things that you don't like happening around you or even to you, it is not about what is now. It is what God is trying to tell his people in Haggai. But it's about what God has done and will do in what is to come. As we are obedient, we may not even see any results in our lifetime of that obedience. But obedience, not what happens now, obedience does matter now. It matters for the future that is to come. Only eternity will tell us, will reveal to us what God does with all these sacrifices of obedience to his altar. God knows why we do anything for him. It's not wasted. So here, we need to keep his perspective and not ours. What God wants us to consider is, if we seek first his kingdom from righteous hearts, he will bless us. May not be today, 
and it'll be tomorrow. But his promise is forever. His cast iron cannot be removed, cannot be changed. So let me leave you with this as we worship and praise God today. Let's ask him for his blessing on all that we do in total dependence on him. Let's not make a complicated church. Speak it back to Jesus. Say, Lord, I am nothing without you. It's simply that. I'm going to leave you with this, this verse here as we finish and go into worship. Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. This is written a long time ago, church. God knows about anxiety. God can, can do amazing stuff. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. What an amazing promise. What an amazing prayer. God knows our heart. So let's praise him. Let's worship him. I'm going to pray now and then we'll go into our worship time together. Father, we want to thank you for thank you for grace and salvation that has been offered to us that we can know that you've before the foundation of time you you've shown us through your creation that you exist that you are there that everything exists because of you lord thank you that we can now come to you that we can not not have to offer something that impresses you but offer something that actually doesn't impress you be honest be straightforward with you say lord I have nothing to offer but this. I've got nothing more than what I stand here today. And thank you, Lord, that that is acceptable, not because of that, but because of Jesus Christ. That I no longer have to work to impress you, but now because of the glory of Jesus Christ, now what we can do, we can enjoy the promise of eternity and so now live out that gratitude gratefulness and do the work of your hands lord thank you that we get to take part in everything that you're doing that it doesn't fall on us for your plan to be carried out that your plan will come anyway but lord i pray that we will not miss opportunity to take part in it to be workers in your great plan thank you lord that you've offered grace and mercy to all of us and continue to do so. Pray that many will come to you, profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, and relinquish, let go of, break the chains of this world. Lord, remind us that all the stuff that has been before, remind us how it did not serve us, it did not serve you, it did not honour you, it did not glorify you. Remind us, Lord, that there is a way through Jesus Christ that we can be saved. And so let go of all of that. Turn away and turn to you. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray and glorify you now, Lord, in this worship. And so we ask the precious thing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.